0: Welcome to Access, Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The centennial of the U.S.'s entrance into World War One, the Great War, is coming up. That's on April 6th of uh, 1917, so the centennial will be coming up next year. Uh, but this year marks uh, several centennials as the U.S. Uh, got closer to entrance in the Great War. The Great War, World War One, is a great marker. Um, and as historians tell us, uh, World War I was uh, a great demarcation point, at least in Europe. Idealism died in many respects. Cynicism increased. Uh, civilization changed in important ways. We're going to uh, talk about the war from the lens of uh, Utah. There's a book out called Utah and the Great War, the Beehive State and World War I experience. It's edited by Alan Kent Powell. He retired in 2013 as managing editor of Utah Historical Quarterly and a senior state historian at the Utah State Historical Society and joins us on the telephone. Uh, Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: And uh, there is a new historical novel out, No Peace with the Dawn, a novel of the Great War. We have the authors uh, with us uh, in studio. Uh, They are E.B. Wheeler, who attended Brigham Young University, majoring in history with an English minor, earned a graduate degree in history and landscape architecture from Utah State University, no Peace with the Dawn is her third novel. She's the award-winning author of The Haunting of Springett Hall and Born to Treason, as well as several short stories, magazine articles, scripts. And she teaches uh, Utah history at USU. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, we welcome in the other author author of uh, No Peace with the Dawn. That's Jeffrey Bateman. He served in the U.S. Air Force for 32 years, retired as a colonel in 2010. He holds an M.A. in history from Utah State University and an M.S. in strategic studies from U.S. War College, Army War College. Following his military career, he worked as a civilian historian at the Air Force Research Laboratory and Air Force Flight Test Center. His work as a historian has been published in several peer-reviewed journals and other platforms, including Utah Historical Quarterly and uh, others, and uh, lives in uh, Hyde Park on a mini-farm, as he describes it. Jeffrey Bateman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Let me start with uh, Alan Kent Powell. Um, You, uh, In your introduction to the book, Utah and the Great War, you give us some front-page headlines um, from June 28th. That's uh, that's the day that Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie uh, were, were killed as they motored through Sarajevo, touching off World War I. Then you give us some headlines from June 29th when the, uh, the news reached Utah. I wonder if you could compare and contrast those. Well, uh,
1: when the assassination took place, uh, it was... Uh, Not very well uh, discussed here in the the local papers. Other uh, uh, issues seem to be more important, Uh, uh, an appropriation to increase the number of tax collectors, uh, scandals in the uh, United States Senate, uh, the poor health of President Theodore Roosevelt. All of these uh, events seem to be more important than the assassination that took place in Sarajevo.
0: And then the news when, hit, and it, it became uh, very much front-page news.
1: It certainly did. Uh, uh, the next day following the assassination, uh, uh, I think when people realized the magnitude of the, uh, the event, uh, uh, headlines uh, reported on the events in uh, the Austrian-Hungary Empire in Vienna uh, the uh, response to the uh, uh, events in in Sarajevo and uh, the problems with the Serbs that uh, had kind of fomented the assassination.
0: Uh, let's bring it back home. Um, uh, let me uh, start with the with you, uh, Emily. First, what, what was the idea behind the the historical novel? What did you want to do here?
2: Um, Jeff and I were both interested in. Um in what had happened in Utah, what happened with the average person as this, um, as the US moved into the war, as they moved closer to war. I mean, at, at the beginning, I I don't think that most citizens of, of the US, of Utah, thought that this war was going to have a lot to do with them directly. It was something that was happening in Europe. It was a European war, European problem, um, but slowly this became their war. This is something that they were drawn into. Um, so we wanted to explore that and see see how their feelings changed about that, and also why they would give up their safety in the U.S. to go and be a part of this European conflict.
0: Mm. Jeffrey, these are uh, you, you at the beginning of the novel. These are students at Utah Agricultural College. This is 1950, 1916, um, and uh, you, you set up um, you know people living in Cache Valley, including. Uh, a girl named Trudy who's German-speaking, including a Native American, Shoshone, mm-hmm. a young man named named Joseph. So this, this will be important to see what happens to them as as the novel goes along.
3: Yes, we wanted to explore them in particular. We wanted to use them as a vehicle for trying to understand why you know, there was enlistment frenzies across the U.S. and colleges, and colleges struggled to maintain enrollment during this period because of it. So we wanted to understand, in a particular case here in the Cache Valley, why someone would do that. It was a privilege to be in college in 1917, 1916. You had to have the money. You had to be able to be spared from your farm to work. Um, it was a great privilege to be at college. You had to do a lot of preparation. You had to find a way to get through high school, which was difficult in those days. So why, if you had all that, why would you leave to go fight in France? Um, and so we used a variety of characters uh, to explore how they served, whether it was in France, which uh, th- uh, four of our characters do, um, and also on the home front, and then how the home front changed for them during the war. Mm. Uh, Alan Kent Powell, um, uh, I'm wondering uh, how things changed. What were the factors
0: that changed? I assume the Americans, Utah's, were neutral. That you know the country was officially neutral um, from the beginning of the war, but it became, it, it turned against Germany. And at a certain point, of course, uh, April of uh, 1917, the, the U.S. entered the war officially against Germany. Uh, what were the main factors that changed people's minds away from neutrality?
1: Well, I think there were several, uh, beginning with uh, the fact that Germany was perceived as the aggressor in starting the war. Of course, uh, Germany was uh, concerned with, uh, with really two enemies, one on the Western Front, the French, and the, uh, the second enemy, uh, Russia, on the east, and so their strategy involved a two-front war that uh, obligated them to be the aggressor. I think a second factor was the, um, the effectiveness of the uh, British propaganda against the Germans, painting them as uh, barbarians, as uh, uh, guerrillas, and uh, and half. Uh, half-human in in many ways, and being able to get that that word circulated throughout uh, uh, the United States. And, of course, during this time then, uh, the United States had declared its neutrality, uh, but that neutrality was uh, quickly uh, uneven in that uh, we ended up exporting uh, much more uh, uh, um, or bigger amounts of uh, ammunition and war supplies to uh, Great Britain and France than, than we ever did to England, or to, excuse me, to Germany. Of course, that brought on then the first uh, big uh, issue, the sinking of the Lusitania, when the German submarine sunk uh, a ship off the coast of, uh, uh, of Ireland that was returning from the United States with uh, about 1,200 passengers on board, 198 of those Americans. Uh, but it was also carrying uh, munitions as well. And so when the um, Germans sank that ship, there was a huge outcry and a demand that uh, Germany cease uh, the submarine warfare, uh, which they did for nearly two years until about January of 1917. And then, uh, under the circumstances, Germany felt that uh, in order to win the war, they had to resume their unrestricted submarine warfare, which they did, which caused uh, a great furor here in the United States and really moved us uh, to the brink of war. And that was coupled with a, another uh, event, uh, the publication of a secret telegram uh, by the German foreign minister for uh, the Mexican government in which they proposed an alliance between Germany and Mexico uh in fighting against the United States and as a result of that then Mexico would reclaim uh the southwest that had been lost during the Mexican War in 1848 that time period so as i say there were a series of events uh it's interesting and i think notable that uh, the United States did stay out of the war for 3 years and in fact Woodrow Wilson in 1916 had run his campaign for the presidency on the uh, the slogan he kept us out of war hmm. uh... so like i say it was a a complex uh, collection of events that steadily progressed to uh... uh... to the declaration on april 6th nineteen seventeen
0: let me have uh, jeffrey bateman uh... let me have you uh, read a passage from uh... from uh... from the novel no peace with the, with the don let to just set this up. This is Utah Agricultural College, and uh, some, a Welsh singing group is, is Yes, uh,
3: the, Royal, the Royal Gwent Welsh Singers came here in 1915. Uh, they were aboard the RMS Lusitania and survived its sinking. So they came here and sang and told their story. And so this is my, my recreation of what they told uh, when they were here in Logan. We were just off the coast of Ireland near Queenstown when the alarm sounded and the crew went to general quarters. Like many passengers, we ran to the rails to see what was amiss. There we saw a crewman with glasses looking out over the calm water, and we followed suit with naked eyes. Reed leaned forward as Williams continued. Aye, and sure enough, we saw a ripple coming at us fast. We didn't need to be told what it was. A crewman murmured, Jesus and Mary, save us, as he ran for a deck phone. Williams stepped closer, hands out in front, bending towards the audience. The, torpe- the torpedo took her amidships, below the water line. There was an explosion, but it was muffled and distant. Other passengers said maybe it would be all right, but she started to list right away, and us boys, well, we grew up in a seafaring, seafaring town. We knew she was doomed. We put life jackets on and tried to help others toward the lifeboats. We quickly talked it over and decided our best chance was to get clear of the ship by swimming as fast as we could, or else we'd get sucked down with her when she sank. Williams mimicked the action of donning a life preserver and swimming strokes. Seven of us boys, strong swimmers all, jumped off the ship at the lowest point we could get to, then swam for our very lives. The ship, she went up on one end and sank straight down, so quiet that those of us still swimming there never heard her go. She was just gone, as were three of our number. He hung his head in remembrance, his hands crossed at his waist.
0: This is... The the only part that you're making up is the actual words that uh, this person might have might have said. This sing group actually was affected on the Lusitania; they lost members of the the group in the sinking.
3: They did. They lost uh, three other members, and they um, continued their tour even after that. And it became kind of a it was a singing tour. They sang Welsh folk tunes, but they also talked about their experiences in Lusitania. We included it because we wanted to we wanted to show over time. How the students at the at the at the agricultural college were affected. They went to this presentation and listened to this story and heard these sad Welsh songs. So it had to affect how they felt about the war, um, because we're in this transition from neutrality to Germany Germany is the bad guy to the U.S. is going to participate. So we wanted to track how they were affected over time, and mm-hmm. that's one of the ways we think they would have been.
0: Yeah, one of the things you don't think about, you know, until you dive into the history. These uh, singers, these Welsh singers uh, grew up in seafaring communities, they knew that you probably ought to swim as fast away from the sinking ship as you can, otherwise you get sucked in.
3: Yeah, they were around seamen their whole lives, people who had experiences with uh, in a very dangerous area of the world for for uh, seafaring and so yeah they would have known be away from the boat when it sinks Mm -hmm. particularly when that large
0: this was an excess of a thousand people that died right 1600 Um, 1600 yeah yeah. Uh, let me turn to you E.B. Wheeler Um, so as pressure as it changes from neutrality to Germany is the enemy this is going to put pressure on German-speaking communities of Mm -hmm. which there were many in Utah including in Cache Valley tell us a bit about that community
2: yeah, so in Cache Valley, um, the northern part of Logan from about fourth north to tenth north um, was called Little Berlin. Um, despite the the name Berlin, uh, most of the German speakers, there's, there's a large concentration of German speakers who were settled there. Um, most of them actually were from Switzerland, um, but there were some Germans and some Austrians who were there as well. Um, Germany and Austria, of course, were combatants in the war. Switzerland remained neutral. Um, A lot of these people had come over as LDS converts. Uh, Missionaries from Cache Valley, from Utah, had gone over there, um, uh, played a part in converting their families, and then sponsored them to come back to the United States. And so they would settle nearby. And so they settled in this community. Um, It was a German-speaking community. There was a German-speaking LDS branch there. Um, There were um, lots of German-speaking activities. It was kind of, it was German was celebrated as a language. There's a German speaking club on campus, um, and as as the war progressed, that got um, that got less popular. And eventually, uh, once the U.S. entered the war, the the German speaking branch was shut down um, very quietly. It just kind of disappeared um, for many years afterwards. That area, that what what would be the 10th Ward um, area in. Logan was still had, still had a lot of German speakers. Sometimes people would say prayers or maybe even give talks in German. But there was no longer an official German-speaking branch anymore after the war. That got shut down. Um, the German-speaking club was shut down. The teaching of German in Utah was banned. And so for these people who had come over here, some of them were citizens. Some of them had not gotten their citizenship yet. Um, those who didn't, who were not citizens, who were from Germany or Austria, had to register with the police, um, so that they could be watched during the war to make sure that they weren't spies of some sort. There's a lot of fear of spies. Um, so they, they endured uh, persecution and a lot of stress and a lot of them, um, had to give up their, or voluntarily gave up their language and tried to show how patriotic they were. Even if they didn't speak English very well, they would not speak German anymore, as a way to show that um, that they were that they were very American, they they were trying to show that they were patriotic because it wasn't it was a dangerous time to be a German speaker. Mm-hmm.
0: Alan Kent Powell, I wonder, uh, other areas in Utah, I assume, um, you know, German speaking communities had these similar issues that they they were dealing with.
1: Uh, they certainly did, and uh, uh, in Salt Lake City here. As war was declared in uh, August of 1914, the German-American community came together and held a, a huge rally uh, down on the corner of uh, 3rd South and State Street where a, uh, a German uh, hall was located. Uh, they, they sang Deutschland, Deutschland, uber alles. Uh, they pledged funds for the German Red Cross. Uh, several of them announced that they were going to volunteer and go back to Germany to fight uh, for Germany. Uh, Even in Germany, there had been uh, uh, a few missionaries, LDS missionaries, who left their missions and joined the German army. And when one of those was killed in 1916, uh, a memorial service was held at the assembly hall on Temple Square. So uh, during this period, there was a, a great fervor, support for Germany. Uh, among the German-American community, but once war was declared, then that changed entirely. There was a German language, a, a newspaper published here in uh, Salt Lake City, the, the Salt Lake City Observer, the Salt Lake City Beobachter was the, the German name, and that, uh, as soon as war was declared, uh, published the copy of the Star-Spangled Banner on the. Uh, the masthead or the front page, and indicated that for the duration of the war, uh, the newspaper was uh, 100% American. Um, but that wasn't sufficient uh, for many Americans, and and they re- or many Utahns who requested that the newspaper uh, cease publication. It was sponsored by the LDS Church, and and the decision to continue to publish that newspaper uh, was carried to, all the way to the president of the church, who. Uh, whose decision was that it continue to be published uh, just one interesting uh, connection between uh, the newspaper and uh, and Logan was uh, the response of a an editor of the Obachter to a an article that appeared in the uh, the Logan newspaper in that newspaper the uh, article claimed that uh, uh, Belgian children with their severed arms are, were now being brought to the United States and brought to the West. Um, the publisher of the Old Doctor said that he would give a $100 reward for any evidence of this taking place, any of these children that uh, were actually here. And the, the Logan Journal responded, well, we may not have the proof, but it's obvious the Germans are guilty. Uh, we don't need the proof, and uh, and so this kind of back and forth continued. But by and large, then the German American community was uh, was behind the the war once it started.
0: Uh, E.B. Wheeler, before we go to break, I want to bring this forward. You mention in the, the back of uh, your book, um, a Japanese American fellow, Michio Kuramoto, mm-hmm. uh who provides a link World War One to World War Two, and the similar issues. Germans, German-speaking peoples are forced to register in many cases, mm-hmm. uh, so you keep an eye on you. And, of course, we know the history in or- World War II with with uh, Japanese Americans.
2: Yeah. Um, so Mochi Kuramoto um, was a name we came across um, as we were just researching uh, Utahns who'd been involved in, um, in the Great War. And... Um, I was curious about him because it was clearly a, a Japanese name, and so I did some research through the census records and things like that and found out more about him. Um, he uh, would not have been a U.S. citizen, um, but he was drafted, uh, served in World War One, and then um, came home after that, uh, married, uh, was farming in Utah. The Great Depression hits, and he moved to California, California, um, which was kind of a, an ominous decision in a way because we know what happened to Japanese who were in California. And he he died shortly before Pearl Harbor. He died, I think, in April of 1941. Um, but his family, um, after Pearl Harbor, his wife and all of his American-born children were deported to an internment camp in Arkansas. Um, at just about the same time that they placed his veteran's headstone in the um, Lodi, California, cemetery, his family's being been. Deported as enemy aliens or potential enemy aliens, and so, yeah, there's definitely um, there's definitely I think a connection between the Germans in World War One and the the Japanese in World War Two. The Japanese, um, of course, had the mass deportation, which the Germans did not have, but just that fear of of the enemy, just based on um, the language they spoke or the color of their skin, um, disregarding. You know Kuramoto's service record; that he was a veteran, despite the fact that being drafted would have been illegal for him. Um, he still served; his family was still deported during that time, and he would have been too if he had, if he had lived um, mm. to go through that experience. Mm.
0: Let's take a break, and when we come back, more um, on uh, Utah and the Great War. We're talking about World War um, One. It was the war to end all wars, right? And um, and then, of course, World War Two <laughs> happened and and uh, you know there's there's fear uh, ebbing and flowing about you know what would happen in World War III. We we suspect World War III would be really the the word end all wars end the world. Um, it's interesting to look back at this history, and we uh, are at uh, centennial points for uh, these uh, memorable events of World War I. Uh, U.S. entrance into World War I happened April 6, 1917, but many other things happened in, in the 1916, so 100 years ago. Uh, there's a new book out, Utah and the Great War, the Beehive State and the World War One Experience. It's edited by Alan Kent Powell, and he is with us, and a new historical novel is out, No Peace with the Dawn. A novel of the Great War, and we have with us uh, the two authors, E.B. Wheeler and Jeffrey uh, Bateman. Uh, let me just mention a few events um, for the authors of No Peace uh, with the Don. Uh, they are going to uh, be at the Merrill-Kazir Library on the USU campus November 3rd, 7 p.m. Uh, November 9th, 7 p.m., for the Cache Valley Historical Society at the Old Logan Courthouse. Then November 11th, um, from 6 to 8 p.m. in Ogden, And at the King's English Bookstore in uh, Salt Lake City on Saturday, November 12th at 1 p.m. You can join this conversation at 1 800 826 1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. We have much more following this break.
4: Did you know that when parents rave about a goal their child scored in the latest soccer game, the young athlete may be hearing more pressure than praise? When parents focus on scoring or the amount of time played on the field, the child may be hearing that mom or dad only cares about winning. Parental pressure and an overemphasis on winning in youth sports are the biggest reasons why children drop out. By the time they turn 13, 7 out of 10 young players quit participating. So what is the best thing a parent can say after watching their child's game? They can tell their young athlete, I love watching you play. Children also appreciate their parents when they hear some encouragement after a bad game. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah.
1: Campaign surrogates don't get paid much. They're in the
0: hot seat pretty much all the time, and they have to support their candidate no matter what. But
3: campaigns could not do it without them. They allow candidates to be in many places at once.
0: I'm Kai Rizdal. inside that inside job. We'll have the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street. Of course, it is next time on Marketplace.
2: Join us
1: tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going back 100 years. We're uh, at uh, centennial points for the U.S. and Utah's entrance into World War One, the Great War, the War to end all wars. Uh, the official entrance into the war for the U.S. was uh, April 6, 1917, sinking the Lusitania, I think, fall of 1915. Um, and uh, many other things happening in uh, 1916, 100 years ago um some interesting history is out there's a historical novel no peace with the Don," a novel of the great war we have the two authors uh, with us eb wheeler and jeffrey bateman and uh, on the phone is the editor of a, a new anthology or a collection utah and the great war the beehive state and the world war one experience that's alan kent powell um let me start to this uh, segment but first of all uh, the phone number and email, you're welcome to join the conversation here if you would like, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go to upraccess@gmail.com, at gmail.com, Upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Alan Kent Powell, um, when a nation gears up for war, we're very familiar with this from modern times. Um, it, it's it's a kind of an everybody-on-the-boat sort of a thing. There's great pressure on any opponents to the war. Uh, I wonder if you tell me a little bit about what happened to, in Utah, opponents of, of the war as, as the U.S. and Utah geared up to, uh, to enter World War I.
1: Well, um, Utah plays a very important role in that story as uh, Fort Douglas here in Salt Lake City became the, uh, uh, the location where uh, enemy aliens were brought, and uh, German naval prisoners of war from the Pacific were brought uh, to be housed and taken care of in a prisoner of war camp. During World War I, there were only two of these camps uh, in the United States. The one at Fort Douglas were for those enemy aliens and, uh, and those convicted of uh, uh, breaking laws of the United States. Those were brought to uh, Fort Douglas, and those uh, east of the Mississippi were taken to a camp in uh, Georgia. And so here in, uh, in Utah, we had uh, uh, enemy aliens, that is, Germans who were suspected or accused of uh, uh, siding with Germany and, and aiding their war effort, uh, spies and uh, uh, saboteurs, these kinds of people. We also had uh, opponents of the war, primarily members of the industrial workers of the world who felt that it was a uh, uh, a mistake to be at war, especially uh, the working class fighting each other uh, as Germans and Americans and British and so forth. Uh, But uh, in the Pacific, in uh, Guam, for example, as the war broke out in 1917, the, uh, uh, a ship two, uh, there were actually two ships in the Pacific uh, that were captured by the American forces, uh, and those crew members were brought first to San Francisco, and then by train from there to, uh, uh, to Utah and, uh, and up to Fort Douglas. And so you had this group of about 800 prisoners uh, for various reasons. Uh, just as an aside, you can at Fort Douglas see a memorial to those uh, prisoners who died during World War I. Um, that's uh, in the southwest corner of the cemetery. And in fact, on uh, the third Sunday of November, the German-American community uh, commemorates what's known as the German National Day of Mourning with a, uh, a wreath-laying ceremony, uh, talks, uh, uh, President Uchtdorf spoke last year. I don't know what the plans are this year, but it's a very moving experience as they commemorate uh, those who lost their lives in the two world wars and in uh, conflicts since then.
0: Let me turn to uh, Jeffrey Bateman. Um, characters in your book, the, you know, the, the main one of the main characters, Reed, mm-hmm. is a Cache Valley boy. Um, gradually becomes convinced that he needs to to go and serve. Right. You have a, a character named Joseph who's a Shoshone. Right. Uh, y- young man, um, w- what must that have been like for you know innocent in many ways uh, boys, Cash Valley boys who end up in horrible fighting in in Europe and and more horrible fighting than has ever been known before you know trench warfare and uh, gas and. Uh, just horrible circumstances.
3: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, because we focus on college students or people who are around college students, like Joseph was friends with uh, two of the other characters um, before the war, I think they were less naive than we give them credit for sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think they were very much more aware of what's going on in the world and what's going on in the war than college students are today which is strange given the information Mm. that, you know, the the massive amount of information that college students today have available to them, but they they tend to use that as a wall around them rather than an access to what's going on in the world. So it's it's evident to us through our research that uh, at least the college students at the time were very much aware what was at stake, how horrible it was going to be. Of course, no one knew what combat was going to be like until they were in it. Um, People who try to describe it often say that it beggars description. Um, people have tried, um, so yeah, that part of it we wanted to understand their their willingness to serve, how they chose to serve um, marine um, Reed, for example, decided to go into the Marine Corps as an officer, and I primarily did that to show the diversity of service that Utahns would have done. Some went in the army, some served in the Army through the National Guard, uh, obviously some served in the Navy, in his case, he wanted to be a marine officer. For the reason that most people want to be Marines, which is the uniform is really nice looking. Mm. Many Mm. men have made that mistake, uh, if you ask (laughs) them in in retrospect. Um, Anyway, so Reed um, ends up in the Marine Corps, and I wanted to depict uh, the Marine Corps service in France, which was remarkable. Um, In particular, we spent a lot of time talking about the Battle at Belleau Wood, which um, up to that point, point. Um, and of course everything is, is tempered by World War II. You say it's the worst thing that ever happened. World War I is the worst thing that ever happened in human history until World War II. and that's why World War II history seems to overwhelm World War I sometimes because of that blooming second war that happened. But that battle um, was the most uh, ferocious in Marine Corps history. There was more Marines killed um, in that battle than had been killed in the history of the Marine Corps before that combined. Um, and so Reed is in this—we put him in this battle as a young second lieutenant leading infantry into the attack at Bella Wood. His unit, uh, the 4th Brigade, would have 150% casualties during this battle. And you ask, well, how is that even possible to have 150% casualties? Well, it means in raw numbers that uh, the entire contingent of forces who went into that battle were casualties, and so were 50% of their replacements. So um, it, it was a meat grinder, hmm. really. Um, but, it, but at a very critical point um, in the war that really um, stemmed the German tide because uh, it was all, it was evident that the French were going to fall, that, um, that Paris was going to fall if the U.S. didn't get involved and get involved heavily. And they definitely did. And Marines sort of led the way. So we use Reed as a vehicle for telling that story. Mm. Uh, Joseph, the Shoshone character... We wanted to depict Native American service in the war. There was uh, 10,000 Native Americans from across the country who served. Um, Some of them were citizens, some of them were not. And there was non-citizens who were drafted, which should have been illegal. And so we depicted Joseph as being one of those non-volunteer. Well, he volunteered and was rejected in our story, which often happened. Um, But then he was drafted, even though he was a non-citizen. And so um, he served honorably, came back home in 1919, and as would have been typical of the time, he had to petition for citizenship as a result of being a veteran in 1919 um, by an act passed by Congress. But he still couldn't vote. Um, he didn't have the franchise. He He wouldn't have had the franchise in Utah, the last state to grant Native Americans the franchise until 1954, which is kind of an appalling statistic to consider. Um, but we wanted to depict their service because it's not talked about much. For example, if I if I asked you, okay, well, who were the very first code talkers the U.S. military used? What pops into your head is Navajo code talkers mm-hmm. in World War II. Um, but the first code talkers, well, among the first code talkers were Choctaw Indians in the First World War, who don't get any credit for that. Nobody, no one has you know Choctaw Code Talker Day mm-hmm. or anything like that. So, so that's why we put that character in the story to tell. Um, And and also to convey some of the neat stories in Cache Valley at the time uh, where the Washakie uh, Shoshone, of which Joseph would have been a part, participated in the community in a lot of ways. Um, Baseball was one of them. The Washakie uh, baseball team would play Cache Valley teams, and uh, the the Shoshone were very, very good horse racers, and so they'd participate in horse races, and that's how our characters meet each other is they race horses Mm -hmm. together at the Cache County Fairgrounds. Um, and they were very successful at the Shoshone where they won something like 25% of the races that were held occasionally for big purses because they were very good at breeding racehorses. And so we wanted to show the interaction with the community and then how um, and how this white farm boy and the Shoshone um, young man, also a farm boy, become friends and ultimately two of them served together throughout the war. Mm-hmm. E.B. Wheeler, I wonder if yeah. you could tell me about...
0: Um... Diaries you looked at, yes. there must have been primary sources, even though I learned from your book that uh, soldiers were discouraged, mm-hmm. prohibited from doing diaries. Thankfully, some of them uh, disobeyed that that order. Um, but not only the soldiers, but uh, women who went, yeah. went, went to France,
2: mm-hmm.
0: including uh, the main female character, her Clara.
2: Yeah, Clara... Um was inspired by a Utah woman who did go and serve um, she went to she went to go and drive ambulances um, her name the utah woman 's name was uh, Maud Fitch um, she had to pay her own way um so this was an entire not only was she volunteering to do it she 's paying her own way and she even um, in the case of Maud Fitch she actually was also um going to purchase her own ambulance and pay for all the gas while she was driving over there so this was i mean she wanted to do this you know not only was she a woman going where Women were um, needed, but still it was, it was kind of an awkward situation where they, they needed the women there to perform some of those roles to free up men for fighting. But um, the U.S., um, especially the, the armed forces, were a little uncomfortable. The Army particularly was a little uncomfortable, um, including women. The Navy and the Marines were um, actually better about that. They, they included women as um, clerical workers. Um, so to free up men for fighting. But the Army was a little uncomfortable, it seems like, with uh, using women, and yet they needed them. And so she, Maude Fitch, went as a volunteer, um, and we have her letters. The, the Her letters are in the um, the state historical archives, and so I was able to read through those and kind of get a feel for what her experience was like. Um, we have the letters from her family as well, so we see what's going on in the home front. We hear about her experiences being in Paris, um, driving the ambulances, um, and, and the struggle even with that, once she gets over there, she runs into a lot of red tape. Um, she ends up working with refugees for a while. She works with women from different countries. Um, she ends up in a, in a volunteer ambulance um, corps and ends up driving for them. She wins the, oh, she wins, I think the, I'm going to say this wrong because my French isn't great, but the Croix de Guerre, the the cross, the the service cross that was given by the French government. Right. Um, so she was uh, performed heroically as an ambulance driver going in and rescuing people under fire driving at night um with the with the lights off very dangerous you know you might get hit by artillery fire um so yeah her letters were a big um a a very important resource especially for clara's character who's loosely based on mod fitch um and as far as other diaries uh what we uh we look through a lot of letters. There are a lot of letters available, um, again, through the state archives. There's the day letters, um, which are online as well. Um, We also use the um, the Diary of Nels Anderson, which was edited by Alan uh, Kent-Powell and is an excellent resource. Um, uh, And he was, uh, so Nels Anderson was a Utah, um, he ended up going into the engineering corps, but he was a a Utah young man who went and fought. And so that kind of gives us the Utah perspective Um, What was it like to to be a Utahan who's going and and serving? And in his case, he didn't serve um, necessarily with um, his uh, fellow Utahans as uh, those who went into the 91st Division, into the Wild West Division. Um, maybe we're serving with other Utahns, but he was serving with uh, people from all over in the engineering corps, it sounds like. And so um, it was very interesting to get that perspective of what was it like to be a Utahan serving over there. And having that experience, Utah at that point was still kind of isolated from the rest of the country. It was a little awkward um, as far as there's, you know, Utah hadn't been a, a state for particularly long. There's still a lot of prejudice against, um, against Mormons during this time. And so um, it's interesting to see people having that experience where they're kind of breaking down those walls by serving together. And I think it did a lot to integrate Utah um, into the rest of the United States to have those opportunities, both women like Maud Finch. She was actually Catholic. She wasn't Mormon. Um, but she goes over there and kind of represents Utah. And we have people like Nels Anderson as well. And, and luckily, they did uh, keep some records hmm. um, so that we would have that information about what that experience was like.
0: Yeah. Let me turn back to a similar question to Alan Kent Powell. Is there a particular diary or or account or, or series of letters that really jumped out at you as you, as you look at this time period?
1: Well, uh, uh, Emily mentioned the the book uh, about Nels Anderson, his World War One diary, that was published by the University of Utah Press. Uh, I think, in my mind, this is one of the finest diaries of World War One that we have. Uh, Nils Anderson had uh, come to Utah essentially as a, a hobo, was thrown off the train down by uh, the border with uh, Utah and uh, uh, Nevada, and ended up with a Mormon family down there. Uh, he joined the Mormon Church at that time, and then uh, uh, attended Dixie College, or the Dixie Academy, and then BYU. Academy, Brigham Young University, the, uh, in Provo, uh, and then was teaching in uh, uh, St. John's, Arizona, when uh, uh, he volunteered for the army. And he keeps a, a wonderful diary of uh, uh, of the crossing of the Atlantic on the the troop ship, the Carpathia. Uh, his journey from Liverpool down to the uh, to Southampton and across the English Channel. Uh, his training in France, and then his involvement in the the two major offensives at the end of the war, including the Meuse-Argonne offensive, which concludes the war. And then after that, he spends time in Germany as part of the occupation of, uh, of Western Germany, and he writes about that. And he concludes by being sent to uh, southern France, uh, where he attended the university under a program that was uh, uh, made available for American soldiers. So the reason I like that uh, diary is because it's so comprehensive in, in covering these various aspects of the war, not just the battle itself, but uh, and he was certainly involved in in, in the fighting, uh, but uh, things about the war that we usually don't talk about, such as the occupation in Germany and, and what happened to the soldiers in the aftermath of the war.
0: We have an email that's come to us from Glenn. I'll read that uh, now. I I was just, uh, Glenn, I was just thinking about um, implications of this history to today. And I was going to have us talk about this, and uh, Glenn has provided us with this. Thank you for this. Glenn says, isn't it ironic that the war to end all wars could actually be tied to almost every other war and conflict worldwide since? Between the poorly researched redrawing of countries in the Middle East, the roots of the founding of the country of Israel, the redrawing of major parts of Africa, war guilt placed upon Germany, and the Bolshevik Re- Re- Revolution, With all those legacies, we ended up with the domino theory and the Cold War, ethnic fighting in many countries in which incongruent ethnicities were bordered together, and, of course, World War II, not to mention the constant Israeli issues and conflicts which has placed much of the Middle East at odds with the world. That's uh, that's Glenn. Um, Wheeler, you're uh, shaking your head here. uh nodding to these things
2: <laughs> yeah i i agree it is um there's an irony there the the idea that this was going to be the war to end all wars and it it really did just set off this whole um this whole series of conflicts all these problems um and it you know that world war 1 was was this it was such a global conflict and i do think that we see that um the leadership probably didn't understand what they were doing as they tried to fix it when it was over. You know, they're trying to kind of put the world back together and say, okay, we're gonna it's broken, let's try to fix it. And they they didn't d- didn't do the best job at it, didn't do it in such a way that um it brought peace. It did just lead to um to more warfare. And even just um thinking of the idea of, you know, we call it World War One and World War Two, and they really are so connected. Like you look at those connections, you know, Hitler served in World War One and um, there are so many leaders in World War II, who kind of got their training in World War One, so it really was just a continuation. The armistice was a break; they take a break for a, a generation and then jump back into it. Um, and as we've thought about our characters, you know, we we try to try to give the book a um, a fairly happy conclusion, a you know, a feeling of um, of well, here we are. This is you know what we've what we've learned, what we've made it through. But as we've talked about our characters. And what they would be facing, you know, they're facing the Great Depression, which started early for farmers. You know, it, it wasn't in, in 1929 for the farmers; it started. The 1920s were tough for farmers, um, and then they're going to go in and maybe watch their kids fight in World War II. You know, I mean, this was you know, they they call this the Lost Generation, and it really not only were they kind of lost in a way, but they're just it it did just set the stage for all these all these future conflicts and and heartbreak and.
0: We uh, the, the hour is fast uh, running away from us, and so I think we we've, we've reached uh, the end here. Um, just a couple of minutes for for everyone to 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 sum up, conclude whatever you'd like to say. So uh, Jeffrey Bateman.
3: Well, uh, since Ken is on the phone, I'd like to say thank you personally. Um, I, I the first thing I ever wrote out of grad school. Uh, you were the editor of. I doubt you remember that, but I had a great experience with you, and uh, and I also wanted to just commend you for the Niels Anderson book because. That you know that we, we used his the things he saw and the things he, um, and the scenes he visited and he was such a, a superb, uh, describer of the environment he was in, so we if you read our book it, and I hope you will you'll see um, some of the things that Nels would have seen through the eyes of our characters which we try to do in fact and and we put them in the same campaign um, almost for that very reason so thank you very much for that, and E.B. Wheeler. Including thoughts here.
2: Yeah, I um, I went into this project not knowing a lot about World War One and almost thinking of it as just sort of oh it was just depressing and trench warfare and eh. but I, we we were interested in the in the experience of these people and so as I researched it I was just. There, there it's an amazing story. It is so overshadowed by World War II, but World War one there was as much as there were there was a lot in it that was gruesome and parts of it are depressing or, or frustrating or disheartening. Um but there's also there is there are heroics. I mean, we don't want to glorify. What happened, but but watching these individual people, people who were drafted illegally but serve anyway, um, the people who were on the home front and, and sacrificed and maybe struggled with like those who spoke German and had to kind of struggle with conflicted loyalties, and it really is a, an interesting story. And I think it's a shame that it's been overlooked. And I hope maybe with the centennial that um, they will remember a little bit more, remember World War One a bit more, and that it is its own separate. Um, story, and there's separate people who are affected by it, and it it affects us, too, today.
0: Ellen Ken Powell, have about a minute left to give you the last word here.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, I am looking forward to reading Emily and Jeffrey's book very much, and, and pleased that they used the Nels Anderson diary and in, uh, in their research. And I, I do remember uh, Jeffrey's article in the Historical Quarterly, a very interesting one on uh, the West Point of the West, uh, Utah State University and, and World War too. So uh, uh, let me encourage readers to take a look at that too. Let me just sum up by saying in the, the book that uh, the University of Utah Press has published, Utah and the Great War, we have 17 articles in there by a variety of scholars that cover everything from uh, the soldier's experience. Uh, Maud Fitch is mentioned in, in a chapter on women in World War I. Uh, we have what happened in the home front in a ver- several communities. Uh, san juan county in Canaraville. we have uh... topics articles on the uh, immigrants and their experience and uh... the flu epidemic uh... an article on the go shoots and their draft resistance that's fascinating another article on uh, uh... an episcopalian bishop who resigned because of his uh... opposition to the war so i would uh, encourage readers if you're interested in world war two these scholars that we've been able to publish in this book have done a, a fantastic job of pre- presenting a, a variety of aspects of the war.
0: And uh, that book is Utah and the Great War, the Beehive State and the World War One Experience. Alan Kent Powell is the editor. He has joined us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we have been talking about uh, a new historical novel, No Peace with the Dawn, a novel of the Great War. And we've had with us E.B. Wheeler and uh, Jeffrey Bateman, the, the co-authors. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Let me just mention quickly at the end here, several dates you can uh, interact with E.B. Wheeler and uh, and Jeffrey Bateman. Um, Merrill-Kazir Library, November 3rd, 7 p.m. in Ogden, 25th Street, November 11th, 6 to 8 p.m., November 9th, 7 p.m. at the old uh, Logan Courthouse in Logan, and Saturday, November 12th, 1 p.m., King's English Bookshop. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.
4: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We go now to commentator Gina Wickwar. Sometimes you hear such heartwarming stories that you just have to spread them around. I'm associated with a Logan Nursing Complex called Sunshine Terrace Foundation. It's been around 69 years, providing seniors, juniors, and in-betweens with an extraordinary range of services, including skilled nursing, physical therapy, short and long-term rehab, home care, assisted living residential homes, water therapy, and exercise workouts. There's also a host of classes for residents and non-residents who want to know how to live healthier lives and understand how they can strengthen their physical stamina. In other words, it's a wonderful complex that can care for almost every range of physical needs, from the young to the old. Each fall Sunshine Terrace staff puts on a neighborhood barbecue for the residents and their families and invites the surrounding neighborhood. The staff calculates that this year they flipped more than 400 hamburgers and hot dogs and had several hundred folks attend. There was face painting, a balloon twister, and bounce houses. Board member Richard Hatch, well-known for his David Copperfield-like Prestidigitations, presented a marvelous roaming magic show. The street was closed to exhibit 16 restored vehicles that various people were able to show off. Folks were able to vote for their favorite car, and prizes were given to the winners. 50s music added to the whole carnival-like atmosphere. The two most wonderful stories I heard about this year's event was one about a young five-year-old neighborhood girl new arrivals to this country she and her family had come to the block party for all the fun interestingly she had never tasted a hamburger before but after eating one her eyes lit up and she announced that it was the best thing she'd ever tasted burger flippin director Brian Erickson tried to caution her about eating too many but she assured him she was doing great and she was She downed a total of five before finally admitting she was actually getting a little full. Staff, residents, and neighbors thought she was about the cutest thing they had ever seen. The other sweet story came about because of a certain, thoughtful, and special person in our community, Jim Lobb. To make the Sunshine Terrace old-timers extra happy... He brought in his old, old Yellowstone bus and entered it in the vehicle contest. The driver gave a number of the older gentlemen a ride around town in it, making their day. In fact, one of the residents said that a ride in that old Yellowstone bus had been at the very top of his bucket list. As the driver told Jim later, that fellow knew every bolt, spark plug, fan belt, muffler, and seat arrangement of the old bus. Well, of course, he told the driver, he'd been studying up on it for decades, and he got to ride in it. Holy smokes. How can an autumn in Cache Valley get any better when you've had such lovely things happen because of a fall evening block party? Hats off to the folks who make Sunshine Terrace tick, to those who support it, and to those who know it brings more to their lives. This is Gina Wickwar.
1: This week in This American Life. Republicans
3: who feel like they cannot recognize their own party, including a Minnesota congressman who is confused when the residents of a nice little small town in his district, people who he has known for years, Midwestern grandmothers, start calling for a ban on Muslims moving to their town because they're scared those Muslims will impose Sharia law.
4: A moratorium. for the whole That's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.